0: This episode is brought to you by the Lagunitas Brewing Company's Chicago Tap Room and Beer Sanctuary. Come for fresh beer, live music, and killer food Wednesdays through Sundays, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Bring your group and hop on a brewery tour seven days a week. Swing by the Lagunitas Tap Room in Pilsen or find some near you at Lagunitas.com. Life's uncertain. Don't sip. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2019 Miss Cryptid Contest Roundup. I haven't done one of these before, I'm just trying this out for fun and for your benefit. This is basically a review of the regular competition winners from this year's contest, so you can compare them all at once and determine who you think should win. I'll start by announcing the winner of week three and then replay the segments for each week's winners, so you can head to the polls at blurryphotos.org with everyone fresh in your mind. We'll also go backwards in the review, starting with week three, then week two, then week one. The new poll will be on my homepage, and don't forget to put your name and email for a chance to win a miscrypted prize pack with great stuff, including a cryptid crate from our friend Derek Hayes over at Monsters Among Us. One lucky runner-up will receive a Blurry Photos t-shirt, and one lucky miscongeniality will receive some stickers and buttons as well. This is your last chance to vote. Last chance to get an entry for the prize pack. So make it count. Without further ado, it’s time to announce the winner of week three as chosen by you, the listeners. The competition was awfully tough last week, as we saw a fierce battle between the Barego Sandman, El Silbone and the Momlombo. The winner of week three of the 2019 Miss Cryptid Contest and our final finalist, moving on to the finals, finally, is... El Silbone. Congratulations. We now have our final three. So who's it going to be? The Nain Rouge? The Spectre Moose of Maine, or El Silbone. Time for a refresher, starting with El Silbone. Now it's time to take a little flight eastward to Colombia, South America. You might want to slam some coffee to stave off the nightmare fuel that is our next contestant, El Silbone. If you hear the tune of El Silbón, the whistler, your noche just went from bueno to malo. El Silbón, or sometimes El Silbador, is a figure of folklore from Colombia and Venezuela whose origins can be traced back to sometime in the middle of the 19th century. Variations of his description and story have mixed and mingled over the years, but generally, he's described as a very tall, very skinny young man in a tattered suit and a wide-brimmed hat pulled low just above his lifeless eyes. Sometimes he's so tall he towers over treetops. Others, he appears as a tall shadow with a wide hat. In all descriptions, he carries a sack full of bones on his back, and he whistles a slow, drawn-out scale of seven notes. It said the sound of this whistling is deceptive, for if you hear it loud and close by, you're actually safe from harm, for he's far away. However, if you hear it faintly in the distance, you're about to meet your fate at the hands of El Silbón. I'll tell you one of the more popular versions of his origin, though there are a few different variations. Years ago, there was a young boy who lived with his mother Father and grandfather in Los Llanos, Venezuela. They lived a very simple life, tending to their farm. However, the boy was pampered by his parents, and they ended up raising a very spoiled child. He was extremely demanding, ordering his parents around and refusing to eat certain foods. The boy had no respect for anyone. He would make a big fuss, shouting and screaming until he got his way. His poor parents were worn out trying to please him. One day, the boy told his father he wanted to eat the entrails of a deer. His father was desperate to please his spoiled son, so he went out hunting. After hours of searching through the forest, the exhausted man returned empty-handed, hanging his head in shame. The young boy flew into a rage, and taking a hunting knife, plunged it into his father's chest again, and again. Then he ripped open his father's belly and pulled out his guts. The boy carried his father's guts back to the house. He gave them to his mother and asked her to cook them. The mother became suspicious and asked, where did you get these entrails? I got them from my father, the boy casually replied. And where did your father get them? Asked his mother. He grew them in his belly, said the boy. The mother couldn't believe what she was hearing. She rushed out to the forest and searched frantically for her husband. She found his corpse in a clearing. He'd been disemboweled and there was blood everywhere. The horrified woman fell to her knees and began screaming and howling in grief. When the boy's grandfather heard what he had done, he was beside himself with fury. The old man took it upon himself to punish the boy for his terrible sins. First he tied the murderous child to a tree and beat him over and over with a whip until his back was raw and bloody. Then he rubbed lemon juice and hot peppers into his wounds to make them sting. Finally, he handed the boy an old sack containing his father's bloody remains and threw him out on the plains. As the boy fled, his grandfather shouted after him, You should not have done that to your father! On your head, I lay a curse. You will be damned for all eternity. With that, he set his dog Tereko on the boy to chase him down, nipping and biting at his heels. Eventually, the dog caught up with the boy and killed him. The curse transformed him into El Silbón, an undead spirit who must roam the world eternally, followed by a spectral dog that constantly chases him. is doomed to wander the plains, carrying the bones of his victims on his back and bringing death and destruction to anyone he comes across. In other versions, the boy catches his father beating his mother, or worse, and kills him in a rage. In another, the boy grows up to be quite hedonistic, reveling in pleasures and excess until he grew tired of it and returned home where he blamed his father for his own shortcomings and killed him. In some tales, El Silbon delights in hunting down and killing men who cheat on or abuse their wives. He is also said to assault drunks as they sleep by sucking on their belly buttons until the alcohol is drained out of them. But the freakiest detail of El Silbone is his penchant for entering homes at night. He drops his sack of bones on the floor and takes them out one by one to count them. If you're lucky, you'll witness this horror. And if you don't, if everyone in the household sleeps through his visit, it means someone in the home will not wake up again. Now there is a degree of protection you can afford yourself, thankfully. One is be near dogs. He's scared away by the sound of a barking dog. Be around dogs is just good life advice anyway, so win-win on that one. Another, keep a whip on you. He doesn't like being reminded of how his back got flayed, so have a dog and be Indiana Jones. I bet for some of you that's just a regular Tuesday. And lastly, carry around hot peppers. Like I said, he hates being reminded of his painful punishment. If you don't have any hot peppers, just make sure you're near Ryan from Rumor Flies podcast, who, as I understand, has some kind of hot pepper on his person 24-7. So, dog whip peppers. And maybe try sleeping with one eye open, you know, just in case you need to watch a horrific revenant count the bones of his victims on your bedroom floor. That's El Silbone this week we begin out in the middle of the state of maine in the u.s as we hunt the enigmatic and elusive specter moose of maine the enormous moose that has been the wonder of sportsmen in northern maine since 1891 has again been seen this time under rather different circumstances from ever before a bicyclist came close to the monster in the road between Sherman and Maquahoe, and was obliged to abandon his will and climb a tree for safety. So he had a near view of the animal, reports the New York Sun. Every story that comes from the Northwoods concerning this moose makes him a little bigger than before. It is generally believed that no moose ever killed in Maine, or so far as is known anywhere else, has approached in stature or weight, much less in spread of antlers, the specter moose of Lobster Lake. He is called the Spectre Moose because of the weird appearance he presents at night, his color being a dirty gray. It was in 1891 that this moose was first seen in Maine by Clarence Duffy of Old Town, a guide who was cruising around Lobster Lake. Duffy did not get near enough to the monster for a shot, but he could see him plainly. Everybody laughed at his story. Not many months after that, John Ross, a Bangor lumberman was at Lobster Lake, and one day while crossing between Big Lobster and Little Lobster Lakes in company with the foreman of W.L. Maxfield's camps, he saw the big moose. When he told his story of the monarch of the woods, people began to believe there was something up there worth shooting at. So begins a December 6th, 1900 article in the Williston Graphic Newspaper out of Williston, North Dakota. It's one of, if not the first account on record of the Spectre Moose, a humongous specimen, which would have been crazy enough due to its size, but soon took on some other rather amazing traits as more sightings occurred. The Williston graphic continued. For some years, hunters searched the woods in vain for the big fella. Not until 1895 was the monster seen again. In that year, Granville Gray, a Bangor taxidermist, got sight of the moose at some little distance, and since then has had a second view. In 1899, Gilman Brown of West Newbury, Mass., got nearer to the monster than any of the others and actually had a shot at him. He declared the moose stood fully 15 feet high and had antlers from 10 to 12 feet across. He was so close to the animal that he could count 22 points on one side of his antlers, and he thinks there were more. This is a greater number of points than has ever been known on any other moose. His shots did not bring the moose down. The bicyclist from the beginning of the article described it as having antlers that reached across the road, brushing branches on either side as it charged at him with the speed of a locomotive. So he said. He was able to find a tree to climb, and the moose eventually wandered away. The graphics article ended by putting the moose's size into perspective. The average weight of the moose shot Maine is from 800 to 900 pounds, with antlers spreading from 4 to 4.5 feet, and rarely having more than 8 to 12 points on a side, while the bell, as the appendage under the animal's neck is called, is generally 8 to 9 inches long. All who have seen the big moose of Lobster Lake aver that he must weigh at least 2,500 pounds, that his antlers spread not less than 10 feet, while the bell is declared to be not less than 18 inches long. It is supposed that this monster wandered into Maine from British Columbia, as none approaching his size has ever been seen in Maine before. He is a great traveler, having been reported in almost every part of northern Maine. The hunter who brings him down will win fame and a big pot of money at the same time. Who's giving away the money? The Spectre Moose returned to the papers in the November 19, 1911 edition of the Texas Galveston Daily News, which linked its name to its coloration and included the rational thought, as often as the stories have been told, they've been denied and set down as the fabric of an excited imagination or the result of too much whiskey. But the growing legend was added to with some stories that appeared a week later in the November 26th edition of the Sacramento Union. In it, the initial sighting was attributed to someone else. He was first seen by the famous guide, Joe Francis and his brother Charlie Francis. These men were famous shots, but they could not hit the big moose, and this so worked upon their superstitious natures that they fled from the region and would not return. The Francis brothers and all the other Indians and French Canadians who saw or heard about this moose declared that the animal led a charmed life and that only a silver bullet could lay it low. Everybody laughed at the Indian story. However, the Indian tales may have been discounted, the skeptics all began to pay attention when a New York City sportsman, Howard Van Ness, since deceased, not only saw the big moose, but had several shots at him. It was in 1892, 30 miles northeast of Norcross, that Mr. Van Ness, who was accompanied by three other New York men, got his first sight of the Spectre moose. He was separated from his companions and was passing a deadfall when the presence of the monster was made known by a tremendous crashing in the brush on the opposite side of the deadfall. Peering through, he saw a sight that made his heart stand still. There was a moose that certainly must have weighed a ton, and as tall as a camel, with a magnificent head and antler. Mr. Van Ness fired, and the 44 slug struck the moose just above the shoulder, eliciting a deep bellow and a grunt. The moose paused for a moment, sniffing the air, and then began racing around the deadfall in quest of his foe. Mr. Van Ness lost no time in crawling under the logs of the deadfall, and he declared that, notwithstanding his wound, the monster circled the deadfall twice at tremendous speed and once jumped clear over it. When the moose finally gave up the hunt, Mr. Van Ness got back to camp in a hurry. He goes on to describe another hunter who shot the beast with a thirty-eight to no effect, and had to hide in a bear cave until it wandered away. The article also mentions Gilman Brown, saying he shot at it five times to no avail, and ends by mentioning several other witnesses, including the bicyclist, all of which who saw the thing between 1901 and 1906. You can almost track the evolution of the legend, as each telling seems to make him bigger and badder, until you're left with a gigantic moose that seems bulletproof, can pass through objects like a ghost, and gives off a faint glow, as was the case with a March 15, 1938 article in the Pennsylvania Charleroi Mail, Always hunters got near enough to be appalled by this gigantic beast, but seldom within range for an effective shot. In the accumulating lore of the forest, he is described as 10 to 15 feet high, dirty white in color, brandishing immense antlers. Not only his ghostly hue, but also his keen scent, acute hearing, and seemingly magical power of instant disappearance have built up the legend of a wraith. Skeptics say there ain't no such critter but a man named Houston brings the story of the latest visitation. The Houston fella said he saw a herd of moose with one giant white moose watching over them, and after taking his eyes off him for a moment, he turned back to see the white moose had vanished from the area. But the stories got stranger, including a group of hunters that apparently killed a white moose and hung it in a tree overnight to drain it of blood after slitting its throat. The next morning, the moose was gone without a trace. That night, they were amazed to see it sauntering back into their camp, throat still cut, and after shooting it again, it walked away as if nothing happened. And then the harbinger aspect comes into play in 2002, when locals started saying its appearance foretold disaster, after which a restaurant in Franklin, Maine, burned down. A giant... Ghost-like moose stalking the woods of Maine? Sounds like the folks were playing some real-life Red Dead Redemption 2 back then. Besides some of the more fantastic elements to this guy, it's not a creature that lives more in mythology than reality. In fact, many sources point out that sightings of it trickled off after the 30s, which, one could argue, indicates a real beast that may have lived and died. Couple this with the fact that moose are no strangers to light coloration, whether from genetics or disease, and it becomes a pretty solid contender for an extant cryptid. Though it has to be mentioned that the disease which causes lightening of a moose's coat also causes it to rub its hair off and become emaciated, all stemming from winter tick infestation. Hardly the monarch of the forest the stories describe, And albino moose, also a very real thing, have pink-colored eyes, which none of the stories describe. There's also a region near Ontario, Canada, which has been dubbed White Moose Forest, because a small herd of white moose inhabit the area. Now, white moose are rare, but not impossible. What is less likely is the reported size and ghost-like nature of such a beast, but who knows? There may be yet secrets out in the woods near Lobster Lake, and it might literally be a whole load of bull. That's the Spectre Moose of Maine. Let's get the 2019 Miss Cryptid Contest rolling with... The Nain Rouge (laughs) Hailing from Detroit, Michigan, is a red-faced, sharp-toothed little character called the Nain Rouge, an Americanization of the French term non-rouge, meaning red dwarf. He has been variously described, but most descriptions include his small stature, blazing eyes and sharp teeth. Some say he's a devilish looking imp, others say he looks more like a grumpy old man with a red complexion or even red fur covering his body. He's said to be a harbinger of doom, appearing just before or at times of misfortune. While tales of him date back to the 18th century, perhaps longer depending on Native American connection. The first recorded mention of him comes from Legends of Les Détroits, an 1884 work by Marie Carolyn Watson Hamlin. She was probably glad her parents went with Marie and not Marilyn. Marilyn Carolyn Watson Hamilton. I'll share a slightly paraphrased version of her entry on The Nain Rouge. Antoine de la Motte Cadillac was a French military officer who had been fighting and exploring the frontier of the New World in the late 17th century. In his campaigns, he had noticed a particularly strategic spot where a fort would be most advantageous to the French holdings in that area. The spot was called Le Détroit, the Strait, and he eventually gained the consent of the colonial minister to implement his daring scheme of building a fort there. Strains of music mingled with sounds of revelry and joyous laughter issued from a banquet hall in the grand old castle of Saint-Louis, Quebec, on the evening of the 10th of March, 1701. A festive dinner party was being held, with many French officers in attendance, Cadillac included. Whilst merriment was at its height, a servant whispered something in the host's ear, and he, turning to the guests, said, "'Monsieur, an old fortune-teller craves to enter. Shall I bid her to do so?' All were in that happy frame of mind, eager for any diversion, and a full chorus of, "'Oui, monsieur!' was the response. One of the gentlemen proposed to change places so as to puzzle the old witch if she had heard anything from the servants. The party had barely changed when the door opened and the figure of an old woman entered. So strange, so bizarre was her appearance that a murmur of surprise greeted her. A woman of unusual height, a dark, swarthy complexion, restless, glittering eyes, strangely fashioned garments yet in harmony with her face. Someone said, What is your name? In a deep, sonorous voice with a slight foreign accent, she answered, They call me Mère Monique La Sorcière. On her left shoulder was perched a black, meager cat. Half a dozen palms were stretched forth for her inspection, one after another she read. When she hesitated, the cat would lick her ear, and the more superstitious thought it the devil giving information. Many were the lively sallies as she betrayed some marked peculiarity of the guest, and whisperings of amazement as at times her knowledge seemed almost supernatural. At last she came to Lamotte-Cadillac, who, naturally sceptical, said, "'Ma bonne mère, see what you can tell for me of the future. I care not for the past.' Earnestly scanning his bold, energetic face, she took a brazen basin, into which she poured from a curiously carved silver vial, which she drew from her breast, a clear, heavy liquid, like quicksilver, and holding Lamotte-Cadillac's hand, gazed into the basin. Sir, she said, yours is a strange destiny, a dangerous journey you will soon undertake. You will found a great city which one day will have more inhabitants than New France now possesses. Many children will nestle around your fireside. She paused, and Cadillac, thoroughly interested, bade her continue. Mon chevalier, I wish you had not commanded me to go on, for dark clouds are arising and I see dimly your star. The policy you intend pursuing in selling liquor to the savages, contrary to the advice of the Jesuits, will cause you much trouble and be the cause of your ruin. In years to come your colony will be the scene of strife and bloodshed, the Indians will be treacherous, the hated English will struggle for its position but under a new flag it will reach a height of prosperity, which you never in your wildest dreams pictured. You will bask in a sunnier climate, but France will claim your last sigh. Shall my children inherit my possessions? asked Cadillac, unconsciously giving utterance to the secret desire of his heart. Your future and theirs lie in your own hands. Beware of undue ambition. It will mar all your plans. Appease the Nanruche. Beware of offending him. Should you be thus unfortunate, not a vestige of your inheritance will be given to your heirs. Your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded. All were deeply impressed by the prophecy of the Sibyl, save him to whom it was addressed. Shortly afterwards, the party separated, and Cadillac amused his wife by giving her a humorous account of the old prophetess. But to his amazement, she too seemed to look upon the event as of grave import. On the following day, Lamotte Cadillac bade farewell to Quebec and left with his expedition of fifty soldiers and fifty artisans and voyagers. On the 24th of July, 1701, with great ceremony, Pickets for a new fort on the side of an old stockade were erected, and a storehouse built on the foundation of an abandoned one, previously constructed by the Coeur de Bois for their winter supplies. A salute was given from the guns brought for the new fort, which Cadillac christened Fort Pontchartrain. On the 26th, St. Anne's Day, with clerical ceremony, the foundation of the first church west of the Alleghenies was laid. Soon the stockade, which enclosed about an acre, was finished, and the streets of St. Anne and St. Louis was laid out and lined with the barracks for the troops and with houses constructed of hewn logs. Detroit was founded, and its prospects for a successful colony bright. The fortune teller's prediction, or at least part of it, was verified. Six years later, Les Détroits was flourishing, and a grand celebration was held on May Day. Afterwards, Cadillac and his wife were strolling in what was called the King's Garden, discussing the colony's prosperity and what the future held. Thus they were talking, when two weary revelers, homeward bound, passed so near them that fragments of their conversation fell on their ears. Yes, said Jean-Baptiste. "our Signor and the Dos Blanc carry themselves very high, with their silver plate and fine clothing, whilst we poor inhabitants must pay double for everything. Even our petit coup d'eau de vie. Things cannot run very long thus, answered his companion. My wife saw a few days ago Le Petit En Rouge, and then she said. The rest was lost as the speakers disappeared. Cadillac's wife grasped her husband's hand convulsively and said, Did you not hear? Le Petit En Rouge is the dreaded non Rouge. What of that? said Cadillac. Beware the non rouge, was what that prophet has told you, when he should come, misfortune was nigh. Ah! <laughs> laughed Cadillac. Have you not forgotten that nonsense of a silly old fortune teller? Let us return home. Annoyed himself at the remembrance, and doubly so at his wife for unconsciously giving utterance to his vague uneasiness, they proceeded in silence. Suddenly, across their path, trotting along the beach advanced the uncouth figure of a dwarf, very red in the face, with a bright, glistening eye. Instead of burning, it froze. Instead of possessing depth, it emitted a cold gleam like the reflection from a polished surface, bewildering and dazzling all who came within its focus. A grinning mouth, displaying sharp, pointed teeth, completed this strange face. (gasps) It's the Narn Rouge! whispered Cadillac's wife. Before she had time to say more, Cadillac's ill nature had vented itself in striking the object with a cane he held in his hand, saying, Get out of my way, you red imp! A fiendish, mocking laugh pierced the still night air as the monster vanished. <laughs> <gasps> you have offended him, said Madame. Your impetuosity will bring you and yours to ruin. You were told not to coaxe, to beware of annoying this demon. And in your ungovernable temper, you do just otherwise. Misfortune will soon be our portion. Cadillac shortly afterward visited Montreal, was arrested through the intrigues of his enemies, and was compelled to sell his signory in Detroit to pay for his trial. He was removed to Louisiana as governor, but died at Castle Saracen in France. His children never inherited an acre of his vast estates. His colony for the next hundred years was the scene of strife, war, and massacre. Its flag changed five times. Under that of the Republic, it reached that glorious prosperity which the fortune teller had predicted. The Nan Rouge in the mystic past was considered the Banshee or Demon of the City of the Straits and whenever he appeared, it was a sure sign of impending evil. The night before Dalzell's ill-fated attack at Bloody Run, he was seen running along the shore. And in 1805, when the city was destroyed by fire, many an old habitant thought they caught a glimpse of his malicious face as he darted through the burning buildings. On a foggy morning before Hull's cowardly surrender of Detroit, he was seen. But since then, he has never reappeared, having, it is to be hoped, accomplished his mission. But the tradition still lingers among the old inhabitants, that should misfortune ever threaten the bonnie city of the straits, the Nain Rouge will appear again to give the signal of warning. Paranormal investigator John E. L. Tenney has also traced a possible connection of the Nain Rouge's origins to Algonquin Tales of Creation. In this line of thought the Nain rouge would perhaps be a nature spirit formed in the manner of fairies and other supernatural creatures that guard or protect particular regions these spirits would then have been demonized as european settlers spread across america and what was originally a protector could have gotten turned into a trickster at least that's how one theory goes besides hamlin's work Charles Skinner wrote a pretty embellished account of it in 1896's Myths and Legends of Our Own Land. Within the last decade, there has been renewed interest in the Nain Rouge, and now you can find an annual parade, the Marche du Nain Rouge, where you can dress in costumes, sing and dance, and banish or welcome the Nain Rouge, depending on which version of him you believe. And that, Madame's and messieurs, is the Nain Rouge. And there they are, everyone, your finalists. Vote early, vote well. I'll announce our winners either on the upcoming episode or maybe in a special one-shot like this. Either way, in a week's time, we'll have our 2019 champion. Thanks to everyone for participating. Hope you guys are having fun and be on the lookout for some good stuff coming out this month. I've got some stories for an episode, possibly another round table, and I'm working on a real cool topic that's going to make for a great deep dive into some absolutely fascinating stuff. It will be the best. For this roundup episode of Blurry Photos, I have been the ballot box collector, David Flora. Till next time.